Also missing in action is Ian Dunt, who's called in sick. I uh, had expected to be discussing uh, Labor's plans to do a Guy Fawkes on the House of Lords, but uh, he can't be with us. Thank heavens, thank heavens that Helen Lewis is made of sterner stuff. Helen is the UK correspondent for The Atlantic. I used to read her in uh, New Statesman, to which I subscribe for heavens above about 70 years. She was last on the Little Wilders program in July last year, talking about her splendid tome, Difficult Women, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights. Helen, welcome. Take us back to the beginning of the year when the outbreak of war in Ukraine set in place a sort of domino consequences that are still being felt everywhere, but not least in the UK. When we, the year started, Boris was PM, Liz was foreign minister, and they, they did back the Ukraine more energetically than many in the EU, didn't they? Yes, I, I mean it's it's funny, isn't it? I mean, we've certainly had a lot of cast changes in our uh, in our dramatic play this year. But you're right; there was even a joke, really, that whenever things were going bad for Boris Johnson, which was fairly regularly, he would pop up in Kiev having a sort of therapeutic chat with Vladimir Zelensky, who you know at least was going through some larger problems than than he was. So yeah, he has he made a big deal about having a very tight relationship between, between the UK and Ukraine and really standing up to Russian aggression. And that I, was something I, forgive me for interrupting, but I read what you wrote about this and in the complete quote is that every time things got bad, Johnson either would have another baby or call Zelensky. Well, yeah, I mean, he's, he alternates between between the two of them. But, you know, I that was one of the things that I did really respect about Boris Johnson, a, a short list, it has to be said. But the UK support for Ukraine has been unwavering to the extent, and I know Australia has an interest in this, that um, Britain is helping Ukraine co-host Eurovision next year, um, which Australia competes in, obviously. Uh, you know, with the, and obviously lots of families in the UK have got Ukrainian refugees come over and, and, and lived in their houses. So it has been a... a and on, yeah, we, we have led, I think, on that, which was one of the promises post-Brexit, right, that, that the UK would pursue perhaps sometimes slightly different foreign policy goals and, and still be able to lead Europe from outside the EU. So let's give Boris his due on this at least. Even after his resignation, Zelensky was still thanking him fulsomely. Yeah, and as I say, it's a, it's a pretty short list, and then the rest of Boris's year really comes down to one word, which is Partygate, um, and really the end of a long series of, of errors in judgment by him. You know, the other one being things like getting conservative donors to help him redo the Downing Street flat with apparently lurid but very expensive gold wallpaper. You know, this was somebody who treated being prime minister as kind of a, a slight bit of a jolly. Um, and the, the events which actually precipitated his downfall was, was party discipline, not disciplining a whip who had been groping people allegedly in a, in a club. But what we, was it, the Sue Grave report, that uh, was the tipping point? Surely situation had got pretty parlous for Boris before that. I think it was a, a, an accumulation of things. There was another scandal as well with another minister who was involved in um, lobbying, Owen Paterson, who Boris Johnson also went in and, and defended before eventually having to, to expel him. And the feeling was among Conservative MPs, this guy has got no judgment. He is wounded and he's going to keep making mistakes like this. I recall the problems uh, with uh, Christopher Pincher, who was forced to resign after multiple allegations of... Uh, 
inappropriate sexual behaviour, and Boris reduced that to a one-liner, pincher by name, pincher by nature. Right, which as soon as anybody heard that, you know, you think, well, he can deny this, but everybody in the whole of Britain believed that was absolutely the kind of thing that Boris Johnson would say. And it's always interesting. You know, I have this theory that what people initially love about politicians always ends up becoming what they hate about them. And what people loved about Boris Johnson at first was that he was he was fun, he was comic, he was a clown. And that, over the course of COVID, I think, curdled into the thing that people would raise as you know, being something against him, that he was unserious, that he was not, you know, um, fit for high office. And and, and that, that guy kind of encapsulates that, that switch around in people's mind. He might have got away with that in 2019, but he didn't in 2022. Now, the UK is still feeling the effects of Ukraine in terms of energy prices, cost of living pressures, interest rate rises. Do you think the Johnson regime anticipated any of this? I'm not sure that they anticipated uh, inflation in particular. And actually, at the start of the year, the Bank of England, who are responsible for setting interest rates, were very slow to act on it. So I think that has taken them by surprise. And we've ended up with double-digit inflation um, as, a, as a result. We've been relatively lucky here in Europe in having a mild November, but the weather is now much, much colder. And people are really, really struggling with huge rises in their energy bills, particularly businesses for whom prices are not capped at all, you know, or schools or churches, you know, the places that people might go as a kind of warm refuge. Even they are, they're sort of struggling to, to heat themselves. We look back on an avalanche of resignations, including uh, Sunak, but not Truss. I understand that in the end, and this is surely a Guinness Book of Records for uh, idea, there were almost 60 government ministers who resigned. I know. Well, my, so my sister lives in Australia. She lives in Perth. So we do a Zoom family Christmas quiz. Um, and I'm very tempted to give the other bits of my family who aren't based in Britain a, a resignation quiz. So, you know, who was, the, who was an education secretary for four hours on the afternoon of whatever day? <laughs> It could be the hardest pub quiz ever. They made me do an equally hard one about Australian states last year, so they deserve it. But yeah, this this rolling uh, wave of resignations that brought down in the end both Johnson and and then Liz Truss. You know, and actually one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen in politics was the way that Liz Truss just completely. You know, it was like a sort of shuttle launch. She just exploded on the on the launch pad. That the premiership never got going at all. Really, that that mini budget of hers was a spectacular flop. Yeah, and it was it it was going badly even before then. I mean, I I went on holiday for two weeks in October. I finally had my holiday, and so I missed about a third of Liz Truss's premiership just um, just by coincidence. You know, it, it, incredibly short, the shortest you know uh, span for a British prime minister in, in history. Um, basically, the markets took one look at what she was proposing, this kind of Thatcherite, Reaganite throwback agenda, and went, no, don't, we don't want that. It's interesting that even at the end, uh, Boris never apologised. He uh, he just said, "Them, them's the breaks," and uh, he didn't even mention the words "I resign." Which is very Boris Johnson-like. He also said uh, in his final Commons appearance, "Hasta la vista, baby." Um, <laughs> and I do think he thinks he's he's going to look back. You know, he's talking about standing again at the next election, where his seat will actually perhaps be fairly marginal, I think he thinks there's, a, there's an act too that he might come back again, come back round again. Well, you, you said it beautifully. He displayed the deluded self-assurance of a Roman emperor. He really, I mean, he could have been making one of his, you know, his senator, horse, a senator. It was, it was like that 
that feeling at the end. And it was very interesting to watch as somebody who's never got the Boris Johnson appeal, right? I had been of the class of people who thought, well, he's a he's a liar. He's he's lied throughout his, his career. I don't necessarily see what people love about him. To suddenly watch all the things that he was doing not work anymore. You know, so he he goes and makes these very grandiose speeches stuffed with sort of PG Woodhouse puns and and, <laughs> and florid language and is expecting everybody to love him and then suddenly the audience's stony face. That was a that was a very cathartic thing to watch, I think, this year. You described Liz Truss as cosplaying Margaret Thatcher, but she was not convincing in the role. She really wasn't. Uh, you know, and she came in with this kind of Iron Lady 3.0, which, you know, Theresa May was Iron Lady 2.0, and that didn't really work out for her either. And had this huge plan in which she was going to reform the British economy. And in the end... It was really interesting to me because it wasn't sort of, you know, old lefties who brought her down. It was it was the stock market. It was, you know, capitalism that rejected this incredibly strong prescription that she was trying to, to force feed down their throats. The very rich Rishi Sunak succeeds Truss in October, but with the rather large weight on his shoulders of stabilising both party and country, he's just given his his first foreign policy speech Anything of substance? Well, he has definitively come out and said that Britain will be treating China as a, as a challenge, not quite as a threat yet, but as a, as a challenge. And that is a big redo of what the Conservative um, rhetoric has been since the early 2010s, when George Osborne, who was then Chancellor, talked about a golden age of relations with, with China. And there is a real feeling in Britain that the authoritarian turn, extra authoritarian turn of China has been something that is now a, a, you know, must inflect British foreign policy. We can't purely have this kind of commercial relationship. There was a pretty extraordinary speech by the head of, I'm going to say, MI6 and, and then also um, the FBI about the Chinese IP um, stealing, copyright theft, and how and, you know, they came out and they made the speech together, these heads of these two security agencies, saying British businesses need to be really wary of working with China because they can just come in, steal all your intellectual property, and then leave again. And I thought that was a fairly nuclear intervention in, in intelligence terms from those people saying that publicly and it's clearly something that's got through to the highest levels of government too. Our Conservative government has, was wiped out recently in a, a quite spectacular election and they're now licking their wounds and the general consensus is it's going to take them a hell of a long time to repair the damage. How long will it take the Tories? Because uh, you know, there's obviously great self-doubt. Lots of young Tories are leaving the party in droves. I was surprised when I saw that um, Dehenna Davison, who is a was nominated as a kind of rising star, she was very Brexity, very, you know, young star on the right. She is standing down at the next election. Now, she's not even 30 years old. So that is somebody who has calculated that they are expecting a period of opposition of maybe 10 years. And, you know, their chances, their peak years where they could have been perhaps hoping to be a minister, will pass by instead in, in opposition. Sajid Javid, who was a cabinet minister, has also stood down. You know, that is somebody who thinks I've got maybe you know, 15 years left to do some serious earning. I'd rather do that than, than spend 10 years on the back benches. So, yeah, there are calculations being made in the Tory party about a, a long period of opposition being expected. You describe Keir Starmer, very likely the next PM, as ruthless, self-contained, and although slow to come to a decision, willing to play with very high stakes. What's this uh, bulldozing the House of Lords all about? 
So Keir Starmer commissioned the former Prime Minister Gordon Brown to review Britain's constitutional settlement. And the most eye-catching proposal is, is one to abolish the House of Lords. It's interesting that um, Keir Starmer has not wholly endorsed that. Uh, that plan, because there are people like the former Labour Minister David Blunkett, the former Labour Minister Peter Mandelson, saying this will suck up all the oxygen uh, of your first term. And I think that that argument is a very um, potent one with, with, with Keir Starmer about the language of priorities. However, you know, I, I can't keep coming back to this because I find it absurd and ridiculous. We do still have in Britain 92 hereditary peers in the House of Lords, people who are just there because, you know, their great-great-great-great-grandmother slept with Charles II or their great-great-great-great-great-grandfather fought in a war with Edward II. Um, and that is, you know, that is crazy. And I, so there are definitely reforms to the House of Lords that could be done on a smaller scale, even if you didn't go so far as abolishing it. And also it's over stuff now. It's over a thousand people. There are people who barely turn up there. I mean, it, it is ripe for a good clear out at minimum. Helen, thanks for your time. I've been talking to Helen Lewis, staff writer for The Atlantic, and uh, Ian Dunt will be back with us when we return in late January. It's easier than ever to hear your favourite local and national ABC radio stations, live and on demand on the ABC Listen app.